Well, we're diving into the Apostles' Creed over the course of the summer. And I know that might be a new thing for you, depending on the background you come from. And especially as Baptists, we tend not to say the creed too often in church. And uh, it's kind of, in, in my mind, a little bit of a shame because it's a wonderful summary of the teachings of the apostles. And one of the things that the creed does for us is gave a, gives us a framework to think theologically about what we believe. Because what we believe matters. Uh, what we believe matters in informing our actions and our thoughts about the world. And so we thought we'd spend some time coming to these core beliefs that we find in the Apostles' Creed. I think you've seen probably the uh, concentric, concentric, concentric circles when you talk about conflict resolution or management. And uh, when we think about that in the church, we can think about our belief system the same way. Right at the core, there are a heart of beliefs and values that we hold to no matter what. And then beyond that, there's a circle that we might call convictions. And some of those convictions are the things that make us unique or give us a, a special voice. So you know, Presbyterians have a few different convictions from Baptists, and so do Anglicans. But uh, we, we talk about and we maybe we even uh, debate about those convictions. And then another circle might be questions. Uh, the stuff we really are not sure about, but we can explore together and question together, but they're not really central to our faith. I would even add a fourth circle, preferences. That's things like the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. <laughs> Unfortunately, we, we tend to have a lot of disputes, and people even leave churches over preferences. When do you meet for service? And what kind of coffee do you serve? And are you facing the right direction? I don't know. Whatever it is, the preferences. And so we want to draw together around the core. And that's what the Apostles' Creed helps us to do. It reminds us of the things that are central to our faith, and it gives us a, a point of unity that we can use to work with a, a lot of different people and a point of unity to come together in the church. And so right at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed is this statement. Does anybody memorize it already? What's the first statement of the Apostles' Creed? I know you have, Robin. I... Yes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Just a fundamental start to our faith. The Bible tells us that anybody who wants to come to God must first, what? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So that's the starting point. Today, we're going to go on to the next statement, which is really simple. It just says, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord an equally important core statement. And, and this is going to be a direct echo of the passage that I'm about to read to us today. And so I want to really make this clear. Even though we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed is not the authority that we lean on. The authority is the Bible. The Apostles' Creed just echoes that for us and helps us to think through it. And so this statement, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, is found very clearly in the passage that we're going to read. So if you have Bibles at home or here, or it's going to be on the screen, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start reading at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That phrase, Son of Man, it's kind of like saying me, myself, and I. It's a, it's a self-designation. He's talking about himself. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, 
Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Do you ever find that weird? Do you see Jesus does that? He heals people and then he says, but don't tell anybody. Or he, he gets this great revelation and people say, you're the one, you're the Messiah. Yes, I am, but don't tell anybody. It's sometimes called the messianic secret. And I think Jesus does it because his time had not yet come. So he didn't want people rising up and declaring who he was before he had a chance to go to the cross and declare that through the resurrection. So maybe that's just part of what the passage is doing for us. So a real key to this passage is the place where it happens. Did anybody catch the name of the place? Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if anybody's had tours of the Holy Land, especially North Israel, or have gone, but this is a fascinating place. And the location of this story is absolutely essential, really, to understand what Jesus is doing, to understand the importance of the question that he asked, and also the power of the answer that Peter gives. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are at Caesarea Philippi. Sometimes it's called Panius or Banius, even to this day. And really, they should not be there. That's part of the thing that would be a shock, that they were hanging out at Caesarea Philippi. It, it would be like finding Mother Teresa in Vegas. It just doesn't fit. Jesus and his disciples, no self-respecting Jewish person, should be at Caesarea Philippi. This was not a good place for them to be, and there's a reason for that. It's an ancient place of the convergence of many, many religious practices. There's all kinds of temples and idols. There's all kinds of superstition. There's stuff they do in the pool that I can't even describe. They're, like This is not a place for Jesus. This is not a place for his disciples, and yet he's there. There was even a cave there, and still is to this day, a cave that was thought to be the very gates of Hades. So you see that coming out in the passage? But instead of trying to explain this to you or describe it to you, I have a short video clip, and it's from a, a great series um, that's called uh, Drive Through History, I think the series is called. And we're just going to show this short clip to get a sense of Caesarea Philippi, and then we'll see why that's important. Well, have finally made it to the north of Israel, near Dan, at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a large archaeological site containing elaborate building projects by Herod Philip and Herod the Great's grandson, Agrippa II. I heard it's supposed to rain today. In addition to magnificent Roman structures, Caesarea Philippi is also known for Banyas, a collection of springs and pagan worship sites linked to the cult of Pan. Pan, also called the goat god, was the Greco-Roman god of nature, livestock, and hunting. 
all things related to wild times, party music, and of course, fertility. Pan was the crazy looking guy with the hindquarters, legs, and horns of a goat. The centerpiece of this ancient worship site is this huge cliff and grotto containing the remains of numerous altars, caves, temples, and courtyards. This whole area was teeming with Roman mythology and idolatry. It was right here where Jesus, nearing the end of his ministry, asked his disciples one profound question. Who do you say that I am? Does that give you a sense of the spot? I mean, now you want to see the video and stop listening to the preacher, but, but uh, does it give you a sense of the spot, the location, and why it's so important? I mean, there's these ancient Syrian gods that were worshipped there. That's where all the temples come from. And, and it's associated with uh, the Greek god Pan, so-called god Pan. And uh, Pan, as you saw in there, is kind of a weird-looking figure. And uh, the stories would go that Pan would show up randomly in the village, and he would scare people, and he would send people into a panic. That's really where we get the word from. Uh, Greek word panikos is actually from this god Pan, who would send people into a panic because of who he is. That's the spot. That's the place. The name was all, or the place was also named after a Roman emperor as part of the emperor worship. That's why we have Caesarea Philippi. So we have. Syrian gods, we have Greek gods, and we have Roman emperor worship. And then looming behind that spot, the mountain you saw, is the Mount Hebron. And that's the great mountain that we find in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And the top of that mountain is covered with snow. When the snow melts, it doesn't really flow down in streams. It actually uh, leaches through the limestone and then comes out the base of the mountain. And that forms the headwaters of the river Jordan. And so you have Hebrew history and Greek history and Roman history and Syrian history and all of the religions represented there. And in the midst of that, Jesus stands and says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? You see all of this, but who am I? It's like he's intentionally comparing himself with the religions of the world and saying, make a choice here. Who am I and who am I to you? Well, when he asks the question, uh, the disciples are actually quite kind. They give him some good, polite Sunday school answers. They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, which was a scary thing because by this time, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And some people think that he had come back to life, and that's who Jesus was. Other people said, well, he's Elijah. That's important because Elijah was supposed to come and announce the Messiah, even Jewish uh, feasts to this day, they often save a chair for Elijah because Elijah is supposed to announce the Messiah. So that was a nice thing to say. Or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All of these are kind of flattering, actually, to Jesus. I mean, this, is, this isn't nothing. This is an important thing that the disciples are saying. What they didn't say to him is that a lot of other people are calling you nasty names. They're saying terrible things about you. They're calling you a blasphemer. They're, they're calling you a drunkard. They're calling you a servant of Beelzebub. And worst of all, they're calling you a friend of sinners. I mean, those are all derogatory names for Jesus. 
And so people had an opinion about Jesus. I think they still do today. And lots of different opinions about Jesus. So then Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, never mind everybody else. What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, you got to love Peter, right? He jumps right into it. But this time, he's right on point. So many times in the past, he, he, he drowns and he does all kinds of crazy things. This time he says this. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He gets it right. He gets it absolutely right. He nails it. And Jesus turns to him and says, you're Peter, but on this rock I will build my church. And I know Jesus was playing with Peter's name a bit because the name Peter means rock. And maybe it was, Jesus was playing with the backdrop of the massive rock of the mountain behind him. But I think Jesus was intending to refer to this statement of Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock, that is the foundation upon which God builds his church, is that very statement. And that's why it's in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in Jesus, the Son of God. So I want to read to you uh, from William Barclay. He says this, and this is just to wrap up this scene for us in our mind and see the importance of it. He says, here indeed is a dramatic picture. Here is a homeless, penniless, Galilean carpenter with 12 very ordinary men around him. He stands in an area littered with the temples of the Syrian gods, in a place where the ancient Greek gods looked down, in a place where the history of Israel crowded in upon the minds of men, where there was the white marbled splendor of the home of Caesar, Worship dominated the landscape and compelled the eye. And there, of all places, this amazing carpenter stands and asks men who they believe him to be and expects the answer, the Son of God. That's why the statement is included in the creed. So we have to ask a follow-up question as we go through this. And we hear that Jesus is the Son of God. And the follow-up question is this. In what way... Is Jesus the Son of God? I mean, I think in evangelical circles, we're used to hearing God the Son. But what does this mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Because actually, lots of other people were called the Son of God. There's people throughout history called the Son of God. People took that name upon themselves. And there's lots of different people and creatures and groups in the Bible that are actually called Son of God. I don't know if you realize that, but it's an important thing to wrestle with. Others in the Bible, like even the angels, are sometimes called sons of God. Um, even those who believe in Jesus in the New Testament are called sons of God. Right? So what makes Jesus special as son of God? What's the unique character here and that moves it into the creed for us? Well, we understand that Jesus is son of God not in a biological sense, right? None of these characters in the Bible that have the title Son of God are in a biological sense. But rather, Jesus is the Son of God, first and foremost, in a vocational sense. That word vocational, or vocatio, means calling. I don't know if we ever think about that for our jobs, but whatever vocation we have, when we use the word vocation, it's a calling. And so, Jesus is Son of God in the sense of his calling. And we see that reflected in some of the other characters that are called Son of God. Let's take Adam, for instance. Adam is called Son of God because he had a vocation. He was called to fill the earth with the glory of God. But what happened to Adam? 
He failed in his vocation because of his disobedience in the garden. And so Adam, as son of God, actually failed because of his disobedience. Well, then Israel is also called son of God. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And this is a first reference to Israel. And they had a vocation too. The vocation, their calling, was to bless all the nations of the earth. But they too failed because of disobedience in the desert and other places. So then David is called son of God. But David was called to rule the nations with justice and righteousness. But David too fails through his disobedience to fulfill his vocation. But then we come to Jesus. And that's the important part when we begin to think about Jesus as son of God. Jesus is the second Adam. So just as Adam failed in the garden, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is victorious. Jesus is also the true Israel. So just as Israel failed in the desert, when Jesus is taken into the desert and tempted, he gets the victory. He gets the victory. He's obedient. Jesus is the son of David. And where King David failed in his vocation, Jesus succeeds and reigns in righteousness. Do you get the idea? So Jesus is called son of God in the sense that by vocation, by his calling, by what he is meant to do, just as a father is meant to, or a son is meant to follow in his father's footsteps in the old way, so Jesus is following in the footsteps of his father. Do you remember the time when Jesus kind of took off and he didn't go back with, with uh, Mary and Joseph, um, and instead they found him in the temple, and he was teaching, and uh, his parents say to him, where have you been? You can picture that as a parent. <laughs> You're trying to head home, and all of a sudden you forget your kid at the gas station. Never done that, I promise. I forgot a couple of youth when I was a youth pastor in the gas station, but never my own children. But, uh, but you can imagine, right? So they go rushing back, they go to the temple, and they say, where have you been? What does Jesus say? I must be about my father's business, right? Now, Joseph was a carpenter, so we know that Jesus wasn't talking about Joseph. I must be about my father's business. I must fulfill the calling of my father. That sense is, is the sense in which Jesus is son of God. But it's more than that. It's more than that, isn't it? It's more than just vocation. Because Jesus, by his nature, is also son of God. And that's really important for us to grasp. So all these other characters and entities and groups of people that might carry the title Son of God because of their calling, Jesus takes it to the next level. Because Jesus, by his nature, is Son of God. John 3.16, pop quiz. Who can say it for me? The first line. Okay. His only begotten Son. Some of you remember it in the old King James Version, right? That word, only begotten. It's a special word in Greek that John gives to us. And it's a word that's hard to translate, actually. But it kind of means uh, from eternity, begotten. Begotten from forever. That's the idea. And so that Jesus isn't just a son of God. He's the son of God. He is begotten from eternity. He shares the nature of his father. And so when we say Jesus, son of God, we're talking about his divine nature as well. And we see that really clearly in John chapter 10. There's an interesting scene unfolds in John 10 when some of the religious leaders, uh, they're upset at Jesus, as they often were, right? And they come to him and they pick up rocks because they want to stone him to death. And Jesus says, wait a minute, 
For what good work are you about to stone me to death? And listen to what they say to him in John 10 and verse 33. We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus' response is this. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? So do you understand when Jesus says I am God's son, it's very clear at least to the surrounding crowd that he was claiming divinity. He was claiming to be God because they charged him with blasphemy. So this isn't just uh, Jesus saying in vocation, I'm following after my father. But also in character and nature, I am one with the father. And that's an important part for us. That's part of our foundation of our faith, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God in the flesh. And we see that. Thomas, when he falls at Jesus' feet, what does he say? My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't stop his worship like he should have if he wasn't, in fact, God. And so all of these things we find in this. So this makes Jesus, as Son of God, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the prophets. As we think of Caesarea Philippi, greater than Pan, greater than the Syrian gods, greater even than Augustus Caesar, who liked to be known as the Son of God. Do you see what Jesus is doing through all this? Well, why does this matter? What does this matter for us today to wrestle through this? Well, in Hebrews chapter 5, we find out why, it's mat why it matters, and it's at least two things. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 4 in the message. No one elects himself to this honored position of high priest. He is called to it by God, just as Aaron was. Neither did Christ presume to set himself up as high priest, but was set apart by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I celebrate you. While he lived on earth, anticipating death, Jesus cried out in pain and wept in sorrow as he offered up priestly prayers to God. Because he honored God, God answered him. Though he was God's son, he learned trusting obedience by what he suffered, just as we do. Then, having arrived at the full stature of his maturity, and having been announced by God as high priest, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believingly obey him. What is all that saying? Two things. One is, because Jesus learned obedience as a son, he is able to identify with our weaknesses, with our sorrows, with our griefs, with our pain. Whatever weakness or sorrow or grief or pain that you're facing right now, Jesus, because he learned obedience as a son, he identifies with it. He knows what you're going through, and he'll never leave you alone in that pain. That's part of the truth of what this idea of Jesus as Son of God means. But the other truth is this. Because Jesus learned obedience as a son, he is able to save all those eternally who believe in him. That's the message. Because all the others failed, but Jesus didn't fail. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so Jesus is ultimately the Son of God. So what about us today? What about you and me? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? That's the question that resonates through the 2,000 years of all of the options in the world, of all of the 
the things that vie for our attention, of all of the religious systems, it comes down to this question. Jesus saying to you and to me, who do you say I am? That's the eternal question. That's the most important thing. I think some people would say, well, Jesus is a historical figure. Or maybe he's a myth to some people. Maybe he's just a swear word. Or perhaps we'd say, well, he was a pretty good teacher. I want to close by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis that you might be familiar with. And it's a little longer, so we're going to uh, put it on the screen as we go through. Uh, but this quote comes from Mere Christianity. And if you've never read it, I encourage you to do so uh, from C.S. Lewis. But this is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the crux of the matter. That's why Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He said, compared to all the gods so-called in the world, who do you say that I am? So, do we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord? John 20, verse 31 reminds us that these things are written, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your Son, your express image the image of the invisible God, God in the flesh. We thank you that we can worship him today, knowing that he tasted death for each and every one of us so that we might know life. Father, I pray for anybody in this room or anybody watching through the live stream that is still on the fence about Jesus, that they might come to know him as Lord and Savior today. We pray in Jesus' name.